<clears throat> when we get together with Nisha's family for Christmas, there are certain things that have to be there, um, especially during the meal time. So they make this stuff that's called pink salad. Now, I want you to understand that salad is the loosest term we could put on this. I, th I think they call it salad because otherwise you just have to call it stuff. And salad uh, sounds better. So in this concoction, there is strawberry jello mix, cottage cheese, Cool Whip, sliced bananas, and frozen sliced strawberries. Ew, is what I have to say about that one. Jed loves it. Jed, Jed thinks it's wonderful. Uh, they also make a green salad, which again is a bit of a misnomer, except that it is green. Um, it has pistachio pudding mix, Cool Whip, crushed pineapple, marshmallows, and nuts. Now, I never grew up having that stuff in my family. I, I'll call it stuff. How about that? Those salads. I never grew up having those salads. But I'll tell you, there have been holidays where uh, someone realized at the last minute that we didn't have the stuff to make like pink or green salad. And so Nisha's dad runs to the store on Thanksgiving morning or Christmas morning or whatever it is to get the stuff to make these salads. Uh, one year, Nisha made a different kind of stuffing a sausage and cornbread stuffing that was my aunt's recipe. And <clears throat> someone that was there uh, got kind of out of sorts about it because we didn't have stovetop stuffing. <laughs> and so Nisha's dad made a trip to the store that morning to get stovetop stuffing so we would have homemade sausage and cornbread stuffing and then stovetop. This is serious business for them, okay? It really is. And uh, my family, we don't necessarily have a specific thing. Like, we make some of the same stuff, but probably the only thing that we have to have at holiday events is chocolate pie, uh, which my mom always made. Now, these things, these, these desires to have this stuff at these special moments, these are not totally out-of-the-blue sentiments. And I bet if you think about your own family gatherings that there are things you would say have to be there. And I bet that all of us at one time or another have said this, it won't be, insert the holiday here, Thanksgiving without blah, 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 whatever that thing is. As I mentioned last week, we all have preferences and we all have ideas about how things should be. And in the book of Romans, Paul is writing to a specific group of people who were living at a specific time who had specific issues. And one of these specific issues that the church was dealing with was the question of what someone needed to do or to be in order to really be a Christian. And there were different opinions on this matter. And there were people who were saying, well, you can't be a Christian if there's not this. Or you can't be a Christian if there is not that. You had people coming from all different sorts of backgrounds, Jewish, Roman, Greek, all these people blended together who had grew up in, grown up in different places, at different families, different traditions. And you also need to remember that this group of Christians, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a gospel. 
All they had was this letter because the letters hadn't really circulated outside of their own churches yet at this time. So how were they supposed to know how to answer this question? I mean, they understood sort of the basic premise that you had to believe in Jesus and be baptized and you had to go through these steps. But then after that, it was a little bit of free game. And the strongest voice with the loudest argument would often win. So Paul had to try to answer this question for them. What does it take to be a Christian? But he couldn't just say, well, you have to do this, and then you do that, and then you do that, and voila, you are a Christian. He had instead to convince them, and this is pretty simple, but it's important, that it was okay to have a different kind of stuffing at the table. And in order to do this, he had to break down what his readers thought they understood about humanity's relationship with God. Now, I want to give you just a word of advice as we uh, go through the book of Romans. And that is, you are going to be tempted as we go to want to jump ahead to things that you know Paul is going to say in the future. Um, or even to tie Paul into other things he said in other letters. And you're going to want to answer some of the questions that Paul is bringing up with these other passages written maybe to other people, but I want to encourage you not to do that. As much as you're able, let the book speak to you in the order that Paul gives us the information. Why do we need to do this? Because Paul is trying to teach something very specific, and he's doing it systematically. As I've told you before, one thing builds on the next, which builds on the next, which builds on the next, which builds on the next. And so Paul, at these different times, may ask some questions that are really going to challenge you because you're going to want to give this other answer. But I'm just telling you, you're not going to get the full impact of what Paul is saying if you jump ahead. And you might miss something really important. So try to like push that down as much as possible and just live in the moment of what Paul is saying. The other thing I want to encourage you to do is that if you miss a Sunday or miss a sermon, uh, watch it because some things are maybe not going to make sense to you if you haven't gone back and listened to what was said the week before. That's just going to kind of be the nature of this series. So remember in chapter one, did everybody watch, everybody tune in last week for the most part? So remember in chapter 1, Paul had gone to great lengths to call out certain kinds of people, the thems and the theys. And the primary sin that these people had committed was idolatry. Um, they had put something else in God's place, whether it was uh, actually making idols that looked like man or birds or animals, uh, or just putting themselves into the place of God through their wisdom. Um, and that definitely needs to be in quotations, their wisdom, where they believe that they knew better than God did and they knew who should be on that throne. And that putting themselves in that place took them down the road of basically moving as far away from God as they possibly could. He was setting up his readers, however, 
uh, because he wanted them to be so mad at them and they. He wanted them to be indignant about the things that these other people are doing because he was about to turn the corner and speak directly to his readers. So we are going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up there, and it will also be on the screen. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Okay, so again, this is a big passage, and Paul does not pull any punches here. And he had just gone through talking about, again, these people who are self-centered, who put themselves in the place of God, and who had done all these things. And then he says, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, because when you judge someone else, you are condemning yourself. You're condemning yourself when you judge them. You are not in the position you think you are when you judge other people. Since everyone now is involved in self-centeredness brought about by idolatry, elevating ourselves over God, and made possible by God's withholding his divine discipline, i.e., he hasn't punished us yet for those things that we have done, no one is in position to judge others as though the one who was judging had some sort of license because they're morally superior. To put it more simply, no one is better than another. They're just not. The desire to judge is kind of the same as the claim to wisdom that Paul talked about them and they having in chapter 1. It's for those who are in Christ, for those who are part of the church, it's them thinking that they're wise enough to know about what God thinks about someone else. But church, do we really understand ourselves or God or other people well enough to say what God thinks about them? Do we really? Paul's argument is no. You have no license, you have no place to judge someone else. And he's making this point just to the nth degree. Jesus warned against condemning others. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Paul is building on that idea that when you judge, you are condemning yourself because you are doing the same things. Now, there is a question that I hope is coming up into the back of your mind somewhere, okay? We judge others because we believe we know what? What is right and what is wrong. And we judge others because we look at them and we recognize something that is wrong. But God is saying, or Paul is saying, that 
we can't judge other people because we don't have any license or place from which to do so. So does that mean we can't tell the difference between right and wrong? And how are we supposed to do that if we're not supposed to judge? How, how can we even tell other people what not to do or what to do if we can't say this is right or this is wrong? Now, that's a typical question we might ask coming out of this. Because, and I want you to recognize this, which is why I tell you not to jump ahead, we tend to be an either-or kind of people, you know? Like, it either means this or it either means that. Either you can judge or you can't judge. Either you can tell what's right or you can't tell what's right. So what, it, what is the picture that Paul is trying to paint here? The kind of judging that both Jesus and Paul referred to was not like a practical appraisal of whether something is right or wrong, but it was rather a hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of someone else because you believe you have a corner on the truth. So we have to realize as we're going through this that evaluation of something is not the same as condemnation. You know, looking at something and saying, oh, this is off, you know, is not the same as saying, this is off and that's going to hell. You understand? Therefore, Paul declared, at whatever point you judge the other person, you are condemning yourself. Everyone in the human race has turned away from God and commits sins, even though there are differences in maybe what that sin looks like. And we especially, this is why judgment is such a big deal, we especially like to grade sins from, say, 1 to 10, right? So you got to get people to stop doing anything 7 and above, right? 4 to 6, if it works out, you know, maybe they can change that. But 1 to 3, let's just not talk about it, right? I mean, it's kind of how that works. We are permissive with certain kinds of wrongs, and we are not permissive at all with other kinds of wrongs because we have decided, well, that's worse than this. And so you have to change that in order to come to Jesus. But Paul is saying that everyone has sinned, and even though we may grade the level of the sins, really everyone is in the same boat. And God's gracious dealing with his own people should have taught us of God's kindness and his patience. As I put it last week, we should know how much God has to put up with us and extend that same kindness to others. But true to human nature, this idea of how kind God is to us and how sunk we are uh, gets easily forgotten. These, these things of God are known, but they are forgotten, and they must be brought into, to our attention repeatedly. And specifically in this case, it's easy to forget that God's kindness to you is what gives you salvation. God's kindness to you, his mercy, his love, is what gives you salvation. And when you judge someone else, you are not extending that same kindness or mercy or love 
to them. And when you do not extend that same kindness or mercy or love to them, you have forgotten what has been given to you in the first place. If I realize that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, that I cannot save myself, that I constantly make mistakes and mess up and God still loves me, how can I say then that God doesn't love someone else and wants to love them in the same way if they would come to know him? You see? So the point. Everyone sins, and if you are judging people for their sins, you are more guilty because you are doing the same thing. And secondly, it is God's kindness to us that leads us to repentance, a change in our lives. And that's an important point here. That's, let's not let this slip away, all right? That, that God... That we sometimes get things backwards, and sometimes maybe we're talking to non-Christians or whatever, and we almost like make it as if they have to change everything about themselves before they come to church. But the, Paul, the point that Paul is making here, which is really important, is that it is God and Jesus that change people's lives. And if they do not first encounter the love and mercy and kindness of God, this God who loves them and sacrificed his son for them, then why would you expect them to change anything about yourself, themselves? Because it's the kindness, the mercy, that love that leads to repentance, that leads to someone changing their lives. It's not you telling them what you think they should do. It's just not. Okay, you guys still with me? We're in some deep water here. All right, we're in some deep water. Let's go on to verses 5 through 11. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Okay, so remember here that God is speaking to Christians at this point. Let's not, let's not forget that, that he's speaking to these Jewish and these Gentile Christians. And the question that he's now trying to answer, because he said God's kindness leads us to repentance, is why do we forget about that? Why do we forget that God's kindness leads us to repentance? And Paul says um, it's because of their stubbornness and their unrepentant hearts. There is an attitude that is present here. They are stubborn in their effort to prove that they are worthy of judging others or of telling others who is in and who is out and all those things because they are actually better than them. And they might even point to all the things they do that make them better than someone else. And though they know the will of God, and even though they are doing some of the good things, what is the main thing that has not happened to them, which is the big difference maker? Their hearts are, you see it? Unrepentant. 
So they've accepted Jesus. They are even doing some good things, but their heart hasn't changed, and the direction of who they are hasn't changed from before Jesus to after Jesus. Their hearts are unrepentant. Now, here's the catch. God has given them time for their hearts to become repentant. He is extending his mercy and his kindness. But this is a thought here. The more time they stay unrepentant, the more they are storing up God's wrath against them. Now, in chapter 1, God's wrath was the letting go, right, of their hearts and their minds so that people could do whatever they wanted. In this case, wrath speaks specifically to judgment, God's judgment, and condemnation from him. Therefore, Paul says, at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Again, everyone in the entire human race has turned away from God and commits sins, even though there are Oh, I'm reading the wrong page. Sorry, I've already said that. <clears throat> wrath! <laughs> wrath in this case is something different. And God's wrath against people's sin is being stored up like a great, this is terrible, like a great reservoir until the day when it all be poured forth in his righteous judgment. It's an intense thought that you can know Jesus, but if your heart doesn't really turn around, then, then you're not really in it for the right reason. And the problem lies here in the mistaken impression that for those who are Christians, God's willingness to let evil go unpunished means there will be no judgment at all. Uh, this is, however, completely to misunderstand the reason for such a delay. Again, the delay occurs because God is giving people the chance to repent, to know his kindness, to know his mercy, to know his love, and to be changed by it but that waiting is not permanent and even you who are in christ are going to face judgment at some point so there's an important tie in here okay that what you do is related to the condition of your heart all right what you do is related to the condition of your heart and if your heart is unrepentant, the things that you do that might be considered to even be good are not scoring you points on the heavenly total meter because your heart hasn't changed. So a person doing good shows that his or her heart is regenerate. Such a person redeemed by God has eternal life. And conversely, a, a person who continually does evil and rejects the truth shows that their heart hasn't changed, and therefore they are an object of God's wrath. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells his followers to watch out for false prophets. And um, if you think about this sort of in a practical real-world level, imagine that you had Virgil over here giving you a word from God, this is what God says, this is what God means. And you have Janice over here giving you a word from God. This is what God says, this is what God means. And they are in conflict with one another. That would be a good debate to see, Virgil against Janice. Like, that would be entertaining. Round one, ding, 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 ding. <clears throat> so imagine that's the case. 
This would be someone who claims to know the will of God, but in fact he or she does not. So how will you know if someone is a false prophet? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 18, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Don't just listen to what they say. Look at their lives. And their lives will show whether what they're saying about God is the truth or not. What you do matters. And God is going to look at us based on what we have or have not done. It's not just the knowledge of God that makes you right with him. God's kindness leads us to repentance, a change in life. Without that change, you are showing that you really do not know God or his kindness. And this will come to both the Jew and the Gentile. He says the Jews first and then the Gentiles, which is not a statement of who is more important than the other. Um, if anything, it's stating that the Jews have known the will of God longer and have had the law, so they could be judged first in this case. But he ends with this statement that God is impartial, that he doesn't show favoritism. It doesn't matter if you were Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you had the law or didn't know the law. Everyone will be judged on the same criteria. Not on how long they've been a Christian or how much they know. It's going to be the fruit. The fruit of God in their lives. So the point is, all will be judged based on what they do, and God will reward or punish each person based on what they've done. Now, are you seeing a conflict in just what we've read so far? Paul is saying, we're going to be judged based on what we do. But what has he already said about us? That we're not capable of, of doing good on our own. That, that we are all sinners, that we are all lost. And so part of us wants to jump ahead and answer the question, but I want you to live in this moment for a second because Paul was not teaching how we are made right with God. You notice he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about us and what we do and what positions we put ourselves in. So he wasn't teaching about how we were made right with God, but how God judges the reality of our faith, how God looks at us and what he wants to see in our hearts. Okay, let's go on to the next section here, 12 through 16. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and there are thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people, people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Clear as mud, right? Law, law, Gentiles, maybe this, maybe that. 
There are a lot of ideas out there, as we've already said, about the relationship between God and man and the way that we become Christians. And let me just share a few of those ideas with you. To some, a human being is, uh, is a person who is born with spiritual life, but then forfeits that spiritual life um, when they choose sin. To others, uh, all people are born sinful and carrying the original sin of Adam and Eve. Some believe that those who are saved were already chosen before time. And so therefore you serve and you believe and you do everything that you can, but you won't know until the day of judgment whether you were actually chosen or not. There's a lot of ideas out there, right? To answer the same question, that's just three. There, there are many, many more. Well, Paul didn't have that kind of image of man that you're saved to this point or you give it away at this point or, or you're born bad or you're born good. He took seriously the Old Testament picture of the fall and was convinced that all beings are, are born and are affected by the fall of man, meaning that sin enters our lives very early and that we are all in need of a savior. Um, and so he believes that human nature, and by choice, we willingly choose sin even though we know the good, and we know that's true. So the basic question is then, how do human beings become, if all these things are true about them, you're going to be based on what you do, but you're not good enough, how do you have a spiritual life? So Gentiles who sin will perish, but the law of Moses will not be used as a standard of their judgment against them because they didn't have it. On the other hand, Jews who sin under the law will be judged by the law, which, remember, is a pretty bad thing because who can uphold the law? No one. The Gentiles are not excused from God's judgment, but they will be judged uh, according to the standard that was not, they will not be judged according to the standard that wasn't given to them. And from a Jewish standpoint, the Gentiles who were outside the law, they would have considered them goners. Like, there's no chance for these people. But Jews considered themselves to be safe because of the law that had been given to them. And they were familiar with passages such as, even if we, are, even if we sin, we are thine. And what Paul was about to tell them was that obedience to the law, not possession of the law, is required. It's what you do, it's not what you know. And Paul said it was those who obeyed the law who were declared righteous. And he makes this sort of side point about, your, and he's making this specifically to the Jewish Christians. He's saying, you don't have a corner on morality because you're Jewish and you have the law. In fact, the Gentiles have done good things, and it wasn't because they had the law. But there was something in them that helped them recognize that this is right and this is wrong. And so you need to recognize that though you have made call Gentiles barbarians and that they're totally lost, that is not true. Because they're doing a lot of the same good things you're doing, and they weren't told to do it. Right? It's a tough point for them. Okay, so let's wrap this up because I talk anymore and you're going to go to sleep. Well, like into a deep sleep. <laughs> what is the result of all of this? What is 
What do we make of Paul's argument? Because that's exactly what it is, an argument. He's trying to convince people of something. He makes the case that while we may perceive of a hierarchy of sin, everyone is guilty and no one can judge, period. As uh, we sometimes say to my boys at home, that's not your job. It's not Jed's job to tell Zeke what to do. That's our job, right? So while we may perceive hierarchy of sin, everyone is guilty and no one can judge. We will all be judged by what we do. And no one is capable of doing enough to earn salvation. And that's, again, where we see things being a little bit contradictory, but it's because we are trying to answer the question, well, how are we made right with God? Is it doing enough or is it faith? Or is it salvation another way that we're, you know, how does this work? So we have to back up for a second and try not to answer that question because Paul's not trying to answer that question yet. The point he's trying to make here, the problem he is trying to address is that there is judgment happening within the community, either judgment of Jews versus Gentile or judgment of those within the church versus those outside the church, and he wants them to learn about why that attitude is so bad. Because if they don't see the true nature of how they are, then how can they go on to live the blessed life that God wants them to live? How can they realize how much kindness and goodness and mercy God has showered on them if they don't understand how bad they actually are. And if they're constantly looking down on other people, putting themselves above them. Oh, sure, I sin, but I don't sin like that, dude. Or sure, I sin, but do you hear about what that person did? So if you've forgotten the kindness of God and your heart is unrepentant, and your life hasn't really changed, what do you need to be reminded of? That you are a sinner. That you are no better than anyone else. But let's reverse that for a second, too. You're no better than everyone else but everyone else is on the same level you are. And so that means that God has been kind to us through Jesus, and God can be kind to them through Jesus as well. It is not our job to condemn. It's just not. And the realization of God's kindness will lead us away from judgment of others and lead us into showing people the kindness and mercy and goodness of God. You know what people need to hear from your mouth? It's not that they have to change their lives in order to come to Jesus. It's not. It's that God loves them and he's waiting for them to know his kindness and goodness. And when they know the kindness and goodness of God, their lives will change. Because our lives have changed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these difficult words from Paul. And we see ourselves in them, God. That we, uh, we do judge other people. We do draw lines in the sand. But God, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And that is not bad news because you have given us a Savior. And God, we desire for the world around us to know your goodness and mercy and kindness. So may they hear that, receive that from us. That we are the recipients of untold grace and mercy. And that God wants to extend that to the world as well. To everyone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.